Okay, I think we're going to go ahead and get started, because uh, I've got a lot to say today. <laughs> uh, this intro week is uh, maybe going to be a little bit different uh, to kind of get us moving along, so you're going to hear me talk more today probably than you do any of the other 12 weeks of this class. Um, for any of you that I don't know, uh, I'm David Welch, I'm one of the deacons here at the church, and I don't see him in here, but uh, Johnny Tassan is another one of our deacons. He's going to be teaching this class with me, so I feel privileged to get to work with him. The book that we're going to be kind of working through in this class is called, exactly what the title of the class is, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. It is a really good book, and I, uh, I'm going to see about getting it on the table because I don't think we have it. But uh, if you feel like taking weeks or a month or <laughs> how long it takes to, to read a book like this, I would uh, definitely encourage it. It's been very, uh, very informative for me personally. I want to give you a little bit of background real quickly on, uh, on Tim Keller and some of the things that he's gone through in his life to uh, help you understand why he is where he's at and the things that he's teaching. So in, in 2002, Tim Keller was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And his wife has Crohn's disease. And it got really bad during that period. In fact, there was a, uh, a year around then that she had to have seven different surgeries in a single year. So they were struggling a lot with just how to handle life. Of course, he's a pastor at the time, been a pastor for many years, and, and trying to decide, do I continue being a pastor? Or do I give up the ministry to take care of my wife and my family? And so this was, he would say, the darkest time in their lives so far. <laughs> They've had some more dark times since then, certainly. But I give you a little bit of that background before I give you this quote that I've got printed there on your page. And don't worry, we will pray <laughs> in just a minute. Keller says, looking back on our lives, Kathy and I came to realize that at the heart of why people disbelieve and believe God, of why people decline and grow in character, of how God becomes less real and more real to us is suffering. And when we looked to the Bible to understand this deep pattern, we came to see that the great theme of the Bible itself is how God brings fullness of joy, not just despite, but through suffering. Just as Jesus saved us, not in spite of, but because of what he endured on the cross. And so there is a peculiar, rich, and poignant joy it seems to come to us only through and in suffering. There's a French philosopher named uh, Simon Veil who wrote that suffering makes God appear to be absent. We see in Psalm 34, David counters that though God appears to be absent, it doesn't mean he actually is. David looks back at a time when he had faced real danger in his life and everything seemed lost, but this is what he concludes. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So in the face of real danger and loss, this is what he came to. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, Keller says he's seen this in his own life personally, and he's seen it in his ministry for 30 some odd years. Um, he's seen that David's claim is definitely true. 
even when it doesn't seem like it is. I, too, have personally seen this in my life. And that's a big reason that I wanted to study this with you guys. I believe that God's church, especially here in the United States, would benefit significantly, both internally, uh, as we seek to minister to our own members, um, but also as we seek to minister to the lost outside the walls of the church, we would benefit from a greater understanding of suffering, why we feel the way we do about it, how we should approach it, what benefits it might have, and ultimately, how we can believe in God, grow in character, and have God become more real to us through our suffering instead of the opposite. Now, I know that we have preached through kind of this topic the last few months in church, and I know the women's Bible study has been on it as well, so you may feel kind of like we've probably touched every base, but I think there's a lot more we can dig into uh, and a lot of practical stuff we can really learn that will help us as a church. So finally, let us, uh, let's pray and then, then move on. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control this morning and in all of time. We thank you that in all your ways, you are right, that you're faithful in all your words. We thank you that you're good to all and your mercy is over all that you've made. We thank you, Lord, that you are kind in all your works. We thank you, Lord, that you hear our cries and save us when we call out to you in fear. We thank you, Lord, that you draw near to us. We thank you, Lord, that you care about our needs and you understand them and you have felt them yourself. I pray this morning that as we begin to study how you walk with us, through pain and suffering, that these things that we thank you for this morning would come true to us more and more. And I pray that you would bless uh, the words that are spoken this morning to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in a few minutes, <clears throat> we'll talk a little bit uh, more about how we're going to approach the study, how we'll break it up. This is 12 weeks. It's kind of a slog. It's a, there's a lot here, but I want to kind of have you prepared so you can know these weeks we're going to do this and that. Um, <clears throat> right now, and I said this before, I'm probably going to have the longest period of the entire 12 weeks that I just talk. So if you will indulge me for a few minutes, um, I've got some things I think are, are good to get you kind of thinking first, and then also to understand a bit about me and why I, I think this topic is so important for me and for the church. So... First, I want you to ask yourself a question, and I've got a couple questions printed there on, on your sheet. But I want you to ask yourself this. Are there things about God, about his character, about how he works, and who he is, that I do not doubt? Okay, in other words, can I come up with a list of things about God that I say are always definitely true? No matter what my circumstance says, no matter what I see in the world around me. Now, we're good Presbyterians, so it seems like those should be easy to answer, right? But I think they're actually kind of tough questions. I know personally I jumped, <clears throat> excuse me, I jumped to thinking, well, the Bible says it. The Bible has all kinds of truths about God. It says <clears throat> A, B, and C are true. And if that's not enough, we get an extra book. <laughs> We've got the Westminster Confession to back it up as Presbyterians. And, uh, you know, we sing the truths of God in worship. We speak them to each other in encouragement. Why do we do that? 
We do that because they're true, right? But I want to get a little bit more personal than just what you and I, excuse me, what you and I should think based on our theology. I want to look at what you and I actually think and feel and how it plays out in our daily lives. So I want you to ask yourself now two more questions. First, does the way I feel about God match up with what I say I know to be true about him? And secondly, does the way I feel about God change regularly with the ups and downs of my life? See, that's a whole other ballgame. Now we're dealing with daily reality as opposed to just conceptual thinking. So don't hear me wrong. It's true thinking, very true thinking, but without application, the truths that we read in Scripture might as well just be ideas. Now I'm dealing with my sin and its effects. I'm dealing with my job. I'm dealing with my wife and kids. I'm dealing with broken and and very difficult relationships. I'm dealing with hurt, with tragedy. I'm dealing with death. Now this is where the rubber meets the road of deciding how much these truths of God that we say we espouse have worked their way into our hearts. How we actually act, how we actually feel, how we actually interact with others, the decisions that we make. Excuse me. It's my, my hope, of course, that our theological truths about God, the things we confess to each other in our liturgy, the things that we sing together as we worship, it's my hope that these things match up with what we actually believe about God as we go about our lives, as we make decisions and, uh, and spend our lives with people. But I know that's not always going to be the case. And the reason I know it is because it hasn't been in my life. What I found, though, is that admitting to yourself that there is a disconnect, there's a divide between your theological truths and your daily reality usually leaves you with really fertile ground to start to dig down and and see where those disconnects are and where the idols are that cause you to feel and act differently than what you say you believe in church. So when you take the time to look for these disconnects and when you're honest with yourself about them, it often results in new spiritual growth, a more mature faith, a newfound joy, and practical changes in your life that affects you and everyone else around you. So I've written eight words or phrases up here on the board. Sovereign, righteous, faithful, good, kind, rescuer, comforter, and eternal king. These are eight theological truths that we regularly teach in our church, right? These are are things that at church we would say, these are true. We sing them, we say them to each other, we tell them to our kids. But these are all things that I really used to personally struggle to trust. Each one of these. I could have said, yeah, I think it's probably true, but I don't really know. Because I don't see evidence always in my life. I didn't have a foundation to understand what they meant, or really what they meant personally to me. And truthfully speaking, in my own heart, I was more likely to apply some of these to myself than I was to God. I thought, well, I'm in control. I'm good. I'm kind. I'm a pretty faithful guy. I do what I'm supposed to, and everybody thinks it. So, you know, I'm worth something. And I, and I thought, because of those things I thought about myself, I thought, God loves me. 
I know he loves me because I continue to do those things. And uh, in fact, my life was pretty great. And I was the reason, not God. Clearly looking back now, I realized that I was making myself into an idol, into God basically. And it created a huge barrier to applying the truths that I said I knew about God to my daily life. And about 14 years ago, God began doing some transformative things in my life. He blessed me in a couple of specific ways. The first way is this. He brought me to a place, literally to a church. He brought me to where I first understood what the word grace meant. I'd heard it my entire life in church. And in 30 seconds, I heard an explanation and I thought, wow, that makes sense. I I finally understand what grace is. I finally began to understand that God loves me because of who he is instead of who I am. That was huge for me. I can't tell you how huge it was that I didn't have to be good enough for God to love me. I could feel the weight of the world lifted off of my shoulders. And for the first time in my entire life, I felt sure of my salvation. That was as an adult. So the first thing he did was he taught me what grace was. And the second way that God blessed me was that I started to experience real pain in my life. Now, that doesn't sound like a blessing at all. And believe me, I don't like pain. I don't ask for it. I don't like to suffer in any way. I don't even like to be uncomfortable. I certainly don't like to be sad. I avoid it at all costs. But the truth is, looking back now, it was only once I lost my dad to cancer, and then the next day uh, we found out that we'd miscarried our first child, that I realized that I wasn't in control. I had no control whatsoever. And things felt like they were spinning completely out of control internally. But I also realized for the first time that my joy doesn't come from my circumstance. But it comes from God himself. I can thank my wife for teaching me that. With the way things were going, with how I felt at the time, I, uh, if I had had to find my joy in my circumstance, I don't think I would have had any reason to go on. Because I had no circumstance that should be bringing me joy at the time. But you see, through his people, God, he drew near to me. He became my rescuer and my comforter. He showed me his kindness, his goodness, and his faithfulness. He began, it was only then that he began to teach me that he was in control. And that he was all of these other things too. God began to show me where the disconnects were between what I said at church and what I actually believed is evidenced by my behavior and my decisions in life. So in in several ways, he worked in my heart through his word, of course, because scripture, I believe, is powerful. Scripture is our authority, has power all by itself because you have the Holy Spirit to uh, to teach us through his scripture. He taught me through my experiences, both bad and good. But. He especially taught me, and I cannot stress this enough, He especially taught me through relationships with His people. God began to give me a list of things about Him that now I've simply found to be true time and time again. And by His grace, not by anything I've done, but by His grace, I no longer have daily struggles with doubts about these eight things. These truths about God have become a solid foundation now. 
So at least in these things, these few things, I don't sink a bit every time I have a bad day because they're solid. They don't change. Or lose my way completely when something really tragic happens. Doesn't mean I don't have lots of other struggles in those moments, but I always come back to the fact that these things are true, and that is my foundation. So this certainly isn't an exhaustive list of things I believe about God, but it's the one I keep coming back to. Where I once found doubts, I now find comfort in these truths. I love to sing about them. I love it in church when we sing about them. I love to sing about them at home with the kids. I love to read them in the Psalms and praise God for these things. Because now they mean something to me and they affect me personally. Pretty much every week I read Psalm 145. It's a great psalm. Um, I read lots of other psalms, but it's one that I keep coming back to over and over. And the reason I do that is because in it, David praises God for each of these things. And it seems random to me. It just happened. These were the eight things that in my life I struggled with. And David's praising God for them. So it's a wonderful reminder and an encouragement to me of all that God has done for me, of where he's brought me from and to. And the beauty of it is now... These aren't just words. Now it means something to me. And now this scripture, I now trust its authority. Whereas before I would have said it had authority. Now I trust its authority. So now I can honestly say with the psalmist, God is in control. He's righteous in all his ways. He's faithful in all his words. He is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. Twice it says he is kind in all his works. I love that. That's doubly mentioned. He hears our cries and saves us when we fear him. He's near to all who call on him in truth. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures throughout all generations. These words that once caused me doubt now comfort me, give me a firm place to stand. (laughs) That's my baby. (laughs) Now, I hope that's an encouragement to you about who God is and how he works. So that's a little bit about where I am in my life and why this topic is important to me. So thank you for indulging me a little bit as I just kind of rambled on there. But whether or not you feel like you've experienced much pain in your life, this topic is absolutely for you. Even if you experience the most minimal amount of pain in your life, the most minimal amount of suffering in your life is just great. Where are you today? You're sitting in church. Are you part of this church? What are we called to do as Christians? We're called to bear each other's burdens. We're called to suffer with one another. When my brother suffers, I should suffer with him. That's that's what Jesus taught us. So even if your suffering is minimal, which I doubt, which I don't believe, (laughs) we are called to suffer with one another. And if you think the church isn't filled with suffering and pain, You need to get to know people better. Get to know people's lives. Have them to your home. Love on people. (laughs) You'll realize that people are hurting. You'll realize that they need a listening ear. They need your comfort. And your comfort is the comfort that God gives to them. It's worked in my life, and I know it, it will work if you trust in God to make you a comforter to others. Outside the walls of this church, too, we have a hurting world. And and the sad thing is they're a hurting world that doesn't know anything about hope. So inside, we at least have hope. Outside, there's no hope. 
And it's our job to take hope to them. But I think without an understanding of what suffering is, why it happens, if there's any benefit to it, and where God is in the equation, I don't think we'll be prepared to do that. So, now that I've kind of planted that seed, think about those things over the next few months. Think about your own life, how you feel about God, how it's, if there's a disconnect between those feelings in your daily life and your theology. So I want to talk a little bit about the actual class. Um, It's a 12-week class. Again, we're going to be going through this book. It's a great book. I'm going to talk to Steve about getting it on on the table so that any of you might be able to pick it up and read it. It's not a quick read. It's thorough and, uh, and I think really beneficial to the church. Um, Isaiah 43.2 refers to trials and troubles as walking through fire. 1 Peter 4 uses the phrase fiery trial. And 1 Peter 1 uses the image of a furnace or a forge that refines precious metal as suffering refines and purifies our faith. In the book of Daniel, we see the Son of God literally walking in the furnace with three faithful men who were not consumed. So, with this imagery in mind, we're going to break the study, as Keller does, into three main sections. The first you'll see there on your paper is understanding the furnace. We want to look at some theoretical things, some ideas, look at cultural things, philosophical things, that I think are really necessary to understanding the big picture. This is not where you come in the midst of suffering. If you're in the midst of a a really difficult time right now, this may feel less beneficial to you. But I think in the overall picture, it's very beneficial to helping us as a church be prepared to move deeper. Um, We're also going to look, of course, at the problem of evil during this time. That's in the first three weeks we're going to look at these things. The second section is facing the furnace. So here's where we begin to look at what the Bible says about the character of suffering. This kind of starts moving out of the philosophical and uh, into the more personal. The Bible has really good, balanced, comprehensive teaching uh, on the subject of suffering, and it teaches us to walk step by step. We'll see that we can't run from the furnace. We can't avoid it. We can't run through it quickly, so we can't deny it. And we also don't just lie down hopelessly in it. We don't despair in it. And part three, the last half of the class. See, I've given just... Three weeks to each of the first two parts. The last half of the class is very practical. Um, And we call that walking with God in the furnace. Um, We look at how suffering refines us rather than destroys us. How do we orient ourselves toward God so that suffering changes us for the better rather than for the worse? And each week we'll look at one main strategy for connecting with God in the furnace. So these aren't separate steps, as I said there, but they're, they're just different aspects of a single action. And that action is to know the God who says, when you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. And now we can actually talk about the the material today (laughs) with uh, a few minutes here. Yes. It is interesting how providence works because just a few weeks ago, I picked up a book from the book table called Experiencing the Trinity by Joe Thorne. Mm -hmm. This book is just right down the line of seeing the character of God ministering to us in the various aspects of who he is, 
even in the midst of suffering, as you've been talking about, this book will go, it'll just dovetail with this class perfectly. What is the name of the book again? Experiencing the Trinity by Joe Thorne. Okay. There's two or three copies out there now. I, I would like we to could probably get more. get many more. It is just a super book on uh, a lot of these things. Each individual chapter is like two or three pages. They're quick reads, yeah. easy daily devotionals. Good. Well, I, I like to have other resources, so anything to add on here. This is not a quick read, not a good quick daily read, so it'll take you some time. But I appreciate that, Steve. <clears throat> so in the remaining time we have today, we're going to look at how various cultures face terrible evil and adversity and the differing approaches they take to finding meaning in suffering. We're going to see that while most cultures don't have you know, a perfect understanding of the purpose of suffering, Western secular culture is uniquely flawed in its approach, and that sets us up for failure, both as Americans and also in the church, because we're very influenced by our secular culture. So the first section is training for suffering. One of the many ways a culture serves its members is by helping them, of course, understand how to suffer well. Max Scheller, the social theorist, says, an essential part of the teachings and directives of the great religious and philosophical thinkers. So not just, not just uh, faith thinkers. Um, the world over has been on the meaning of pain and suffering. And every society has chosen some version of these teachings so as to give its members instruction to encounter suffering correctly, to suffer properly, or to move suffering onto another plane. <clears throat> so I've got a question here for you to actually get you all talking, hopefully. What would you say that Western secular culture, the predominant culture here in America, teaches us about facing suffering? And and what attitudes are we told to have about it? Yes, Julie. I think Julie. the first thing Western culture teaches us is take a drug for it. Uh, that's, a, that's so important. We'll actually talk about that a little bit. Um, So what does that teach us? That teaches us that it's that it's possible not to suffer. Yeah, that if we're suffering, we must be bad. That I, there are a lot of cultures that do that, and I think we get mixes of that. You'll see in Western secular culture, but I think they come from another place. Um, any other thoughts on that, Andrew? <laughs> yeah, there. There is that side, certainly, and we'll see that as well. Self-reliance. Tough, tough it out on your own. Yeah. Sure. Steve? There's a certain amount of the ancient Greek stoicism just got up and handled it. Yeah. And don't buckle under it. Yeah. There's another glory in our big <laughs> tragedies. We see a lot of that in media. Yeah. You know what's interesting? Almost everything that you guys are listing, we're going to talk about each of those. And they have their place in Western <coughs> secular culture, but the funny thing is they come from somewhere else. And that, that's the really interesting thing about that is unique about this culture that we live in is that there actually is no framework for suffering. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. So, Actually, I want to jump somewhere else for a second, and I'll come back to that. There, there have been a lot of different approaches to dealing with suffering around the world, 
and throughout history. But the common theme in all of these approaches is this. So according to Keller, in every one of these worldviews, suffering can, despite its painfulness, be an important means of actually achieving your purpose in life. It can play a pivotal role in propelling you toward all the most important goals. In each of these other cultures' grand narratives, what human life is all about, suffering can be an important chapter or part of that story. So we see that throughout all of time, all of history, all the places in the world. Every culture basically teaches some version of that. So in this secular culture, kind of to go along with that question, what is the meaning of life? And that's going to get us to understand better what the culture teaches. What is the meaning of life? Anyone? Easy question, right? Boom. You got it. No other need for any other answer because that's it. (laughs) Um, The material world is all there is according to our culture. And so the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. However, in that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It's a complete interruption of your life story the way that you planned it. And it should be avoided at almost any cost or minimized to the greatest degree possible. This means that when we're facing unavoidable suffering or pain that can't be minimized, secular people have to steal ideas from other cultures' views. So uh, whether it be karma or Buddhism, Greek stoicism or Christianity, even though their beliefs about the nature of the universe don't line up with those ideas, they steal them to have some meaning for suffering. Why do they do this? (laughs) Well, let's look at... We can look actually at an example of this happening. Um, In 2012, a couple of days after the shootings, the Newtown school shootings, there was an article published in the New York Times. Uh, It was by a priest giving his response, his... his, uh, his thoughts about why we suffer in this way and about what happened. Um, And it was called Why God? The most interesting thing about the article was the comments online. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who commented. And virtually all of them in a very secular audience disagreed with him, of course. Uh, But the interesting thing is this, all being in the same culture, sort of, at least, um, they had wildly divergent ways that they differed with him tons of different ways that they said no that that's not right but here it is here it is here it is and every last one of them were cherry picking from some other culture's view and again those things generally you would say don't fit with their idea of how the universe works but it gave them some bit of comfort or some at least idea of why this bad thing happened Uh, max weber the social theorist says human beings are driven by an inner compulsion to understand the world as a meaningful cosmos and to take a position toward it. So this is not a Christian. Um, In fact, this is a German social theorist. Um, He says that we are driven by an inner compulsion to find meaning. We want to put meaning on stuff. So the, the people who say there's no meaning in all of life, that there couldn't possibly be meaning, they still want to put meaning on stuff. It's inherent in who we are as human beings. Every culture has provided an explanation of human events that bestows meaning 
upon the experiences of suffering and evil. That's Peter Berger, the American sociologist. So basically, we live in one of the weakest times and cultures in history for training our members for grief, pain, and loss. And that is a shame for us as the Christian church. But it's also great fertile ground to do work. I'm going to plow through these last parts <laughs> um, and give them a little bit of time here. I know we don't have, have long, but I want to talk quickly about um, how we are edified by our miseries, um, uh, how cultures are. Uh, many non-Western cultures today help their people be edified or, or bettered by their, their misery. They perceive the causes of suffering in highly spiritual, communal, and moral terms. So here are four ways that societies have helped victims of suffering and evil respond. Um, and these are all, none of these are secular views. These are pulled into secular view, but, but they are not themselves secular, generally speaking. There's a moralistic view, the idea that pain and suffering stem from the failure of people to live rightly. Okay? Now, we, we do see that in the church. Many people <laughs> live that way as well. But bad circumstances are a wake-up call of sorts that you need to repent and change your ways. Uh, karma is probably the purest form of this view, that ultimately, I'm not living rightly, I will suffer at some point because of it, whether it's in this life or the next. We've got the self-transcendent view. So Buddhism would take this view. It teaches that suffering comes not from past deeds, but from unfulfilled desires. The answer is not to fulfill those desires. The answer is to get rid of the desires. The, the idea that, that um, desires are the result of illusion that we are individual selves. So we've got to, like the Stoics, you know, the, the solution is to extinguish the desire and uh, to detach our hearts from material things and people. And then we've got a, a fatalistic view, a high view of fate and destiny. Life circumstances are seen as set by the stars or by supernatural forces or by the doom of the gods or, as in Islam, by the inscrutable will of Allah. It's considered the highest virtue to stand honorably in the face of hopeless odds. This creates the most lasting glory for you so that you can live on in people's memories. Then you have a dualistic view is the fourth of the, the views there. The world is not under the full control of fate or God. Uh, but it's a battleground between forces of darkness and light. And there's a continual purification, uh, purification of the light from the contamination of the darkness. So people who suffer in this view are seen as casualties. They're victims. But they're given hope because they're told good will eventually triumph. Good hasn't triumphed yet, but it eventually will. And then you'll have some good. So these four views sound very different from each other. But really, they're more alike than you'd think. First, they all say that suffering should not be a surprise. So all these cultures say that one thing. Secondly, they say that suffering can help you move toward your purpose in life. And finally, they say that it's my responsibility to put myself in a right relationship to a spiritual reality. So each of these pose a responsibility and present an opportunity for the sufferer. We talked a little bit about being interrupted by our misery, or by our suffering. Um, this is such a good, good bad quote <laughs> by Richard Dawkins. And if you've read any Dawkins, um, he has a lot of good, bad quotes that, that are very telling about his worldview. 
He says the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. So Dawkins believes the reason that people struggle so much in the face of suffering is because they will not accept that it never has a purpose. And he must be frustrated looking at people in secular culture who are trying to find purpose. He's like, you're supposed to be my people. There is no purpose. And for him, that's, that's why he says we suffer, why it's so hard for us is because we can't admit that. He says we should never ask why about suffering because there's no answer but that our lives are as meaningful as we choose to make them. Suffering is just a hiccup, an interruption. We've got to learn to just kind of get past it. It's going to happen. We'll look at how we're victims of our misery in some, some cultures. Traditional cultures believe that the main responsibility in dark times belongs to the sufferers themselves. There's some kind of internal soul work that needs to happen. But the secular view says the responsibility is taken away from the sufferer. It's not an opportunity or a test. It's not punishment. We're simply victims of the impersonal universe. So the solution isn't internal. And this is a hallmark of our culture. The problem isn't with me. We have to seek out the right experts, whether medical, psychological, social, or civil. And these are good things to seek out. But, but this is the only way we deal with suffering, is to seek them out to alleviate as much of the problem, or at least the associated pain, as possible. Now, we've moved toward treating symptoms because we have no framework for understanding our society's underlying problems in secular culture. So Western people, like many of us, are often simply outraged by their suffering, and they seek to change things outside themselves so that the suffering never happens again. That's their goal. This was bad. I'm going to work to do whatever I can to change whatever happened to me out here so I don't suffer in that way again. So since suffering has a material and never spiritual cause, it can be, in theory, always fixed. It's often caused by unjust economic and social conditions, bad public policies, broken family patterns, or simply bad people. So the proper cultural response is outrage. Um, it's to uh, confront the offending party and to take action to change the conditions. Of course, these are not actually bad things, necessarily. We're called to seek out injustice, and we're called to bring justice to the oppressed. So there is some truth in there. But when that's the only way that we seek to fix it, we seek to do it ourselves, that's where the problem lies. So let's look very quickly at how Christianity fits in among the cultures. So let's compare them, compare Christianity to these other views here. Uh, as Max Scheller says there, Christian teaching on suffering seems a complete reversal of attitude when compared to the interpretations of other cultures and religious systems. This is an impartial outside viewer saying Christianity turns it all on its head. You see, compared to the fatalistic view, Christianity doesn't make the sufferer arrogant, has none of the self-praise in measure, uh, measuring the degree of your suffering. Compared to Stoic endurance, the cry of the sufferer, or a suffering creature resounds everywhere in Christianity, including from the cross. We're encouraged to express our grief with cries and questions. Our God encourages us to express our grief. 
Buddhism. Christianity doesn't believe that suffering is an illusion. Pain is pain. It is, it's not miser, it is misery. <laughs> pleasure is pleasure, a real positive thing, not just tranquility. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was the opposite of tranquility as he faced suffering. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death, it says in Mark fourteen thirty four, And we also see his bloody sweat falling to the ground as he prayed in Luke. Let's look at karma. Christians often believe that suffering is unjust and disproportionate. Life is simply not fair. People who live well do not do well. We look to the book of Job as a great example of this. Um, David R. Jackson in his book, Crying Out for Vindication, the Gospel According to Job, says, God has, as it were, picked his best man to put forward as the bait for Satan because there is no one on earth like him. This is a righteous, faithful man, and he suffered almost like no one ever has. But, of course, we, we look to Jesus as the perfect example of disproportionate suffering. A man who had never sinned deserved no suffering but took on all of our suffering. And then we throw in secularism as kind of a religious worldview really here. Christians believe suffering has meaning. That's the difference. One last quote I want to leave you with, and uh, I know this has been a lot in a very short period. I would say ensuing weeks should be a little uh, easier to have a good discussion and uh, kind of take our time so we can really talk but let me leave you with this today from keller he says uh, secularism as richard dawkins says sees ultimate reality as cold and indifferent and extinction as inevitable the other cultures also have seen day-to-day life as being filled with pleasures but behind it all is darkness or illusion christianity sees things differently While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to, uh, to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. So I hope you can see a little bit about the difference between Christian ideas on suffering. And we're going to get a lot more into those in coming weeks, but compared quickly with other cultures, as well as true Christian thinking compared with the secular culture that invades almost all of our churches and our ideas about uh, why we suffer. And that, again, is why I wanted to talk about this because I'm afraid that many of us hold on to the secular teachings as why we suffer, how we suffer, and what it's all about. And I hope that we can... I hope that God will work to rid that from from the church and that we can have a good discussion and open it up and, and be talking about it together. So, I think we're about out of time. Let me pray quickly, and then I will let you go. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, although we know we will suffer, we don't suffer alone. You are near to us. You comfort us. You love us. And we have, a, we have the only God who would ever think to be like you. Um, pray that as we go into worship, you would uh, work in our hearts, Father, uh, that you would cause us to be filled with joy despite our circumstance today that we might worship you rightly and uh, might gain significantly, Lord, from your word, uh, from your table, and from your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.